Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, allegations from several women alleging sexual abuse by a nurse at an ICE detention center in South Georgia has now led to Georgia's U.S. senators calling for an investigation. I'll speak with Azadeh Shashahani, the legal and advocacy director for Project South. The Southern-based advocacy and grassroots organization has been calling for the closure of detention centers here in Georgia. Plus, we'll check in with an education nonprofit working to address social economic gaps related to STEM careers. And now they're going to be working more with Atlanta's HBCUs. Those conversations coming up in a moment. But first, this Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and her office. Well, they've been disqualified from questioning Georgia Republican State Senator Burt Jones in that probe related to Georgia's 2020 elections. Now, Willis's office was seeking to question Senator Jones and others regarding former President Donald Trump and others conspiring to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. Last week, attorneys for Senator Jones filed a motion to disqualify Willis's office. And the issue that has to do with the public favoring of my client's opponent for Lieutenant Governor Charlie Bailey. And the district attorney in this case has raised $32,000 for Charlie Bailey in the headliner that she hosted for him in June. Shortly thereafter, she issued my client a target letter. And then shortly after that, in fact, two days ago, when they filed their brief, that was the first time that it was publicly known that Senator Jones was a target of this grand jury investigation. So on one side, we have a public target. And on the other side, we have a headliner fundraiser. Let's bring in WABE legal analyst Paige Pate for more. Paige, welcome for to the program. I appreciate you taking the time on such short notice. Uh, let's begin here. Your thoughts on this is Judge McBurney's ruling here. Well, Rose, ultimately, I think he made the right decision. I don't know that there was a true legal conflict here, but clearly Judge McBurney wants to protect this special grand jury, wants to make sure there's no appearance of potential conflicts, political motivations. And so he tried to thread the needle here. I'm going to let Ms. Willis go forward with all of the other subpoenas as far as these other fake electors are concerned. But I'm going to take out Senator Jones. That's something someone else who doesn't have this conflict will have to deal with. Paige, you have obviously this is your <laughs> you, this is your wheelhouse, as they say. This is your opinion, though. Shouldn't District Attorney Willis have known better to be involved with an opponent, a political opponent of someone that she's also trying to prosecute? Well, not prosecute, but bring in. Yes, and potentially prosecute. I think there are two problems here. One is McBurney was right. I mean, the optics of her holding a fundraiser, raising money for the opponent of Senator Jones in the upcoming election, just horrible optics. And it creates an issue that these folks would not otherwise have. Now they can actually point to an action taken by the district attorney as being political. And so the whole investigation is politically motivated. That's going to be their argument. And now they have some support for it. The second problem here, and again, totally unforced error, there was no legal requirement to send a target letter in the first place. Mm -hmm. So if I'm supporting a candidate's opponent, the last thing I want to do if I want to avoid the appearance of impropriety is send out a public letter saying he's being investigated for criminal conduct by a grand jury. That's going to taint the campaign necessarily. 
So she shouldn't have sent the target letter, and she certainly shouldn't have had the fundraiser. Now, we should note that the court denies the motion to disqualify as adopted by the other 11 electors who were called um, to, to testify as well. But might they come back to the judge and say, hey, can you reconsider this, given that you've already ruled? I mean, are there, are there any legal challenges that attorneys for these other electors could bring up still? I don't think so. Not successfully. Certainly, they could go back and ask Judge McBurney to reconsider. But I think more importantly, even if they don't get some legal decision transferring their case to a different prosecutor, they now can point to this going forward in public statements as part of their defense if the case is ever tried. Uh, It's just an issue that did not need to be there. And now it's something the DA has to deal with. How much of a blow is this, obviously, for DA Willis and her office? Well, again, there, there are two things to look at. One, is it a blow if the case is actually charged and it goes to trial? Yes, it, it gives the other side some ammunition to say this is all political. More immediate concern to the DA is what kind of a procedural burden does this create in actually getting to the point of an indictment? She is now prohibited from questioning, her entire office prohibited mm-hmm. from questioning what could be a critical witness, if not a potential target of the investigation. That's got to go to some other DA in the state uh, who will then take care of that very narrow part of the investigation. But she's not going to be able to seek an indictment of Senator Jones. She's not going to be able to even talk to Senator Jones. So certainly creates both some logistical and substantive concerns going forward in the case. Meanwhile, we do know that the judge is is requiring uh, Donald Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, he needs to, obviously, I think it's in August that he must appear. Uh, based on all, everything that's been happening so far, Paige, what else is standing out to you about this probe here? Well, I think before this decision this morning, um, the district attorney was certainly going down the road of a potential racketeering indictment, a very broad conspiracy, also perhaps conspiracy to interfere with the election. Uh, I think she was building it the right way, laying a solid foundation, getting the evidence she needed to show both the conspiracy, the agreement to do this, and also the substantive steps people were taking to further that agreement. So everything was on track, I think, from her perspective in building a case, and if not building it by the November election, certainly being in a position to go forward after the election. Now, not only is the timing off, I think there may be a legitimate uh, obstacle to getting to where she wanted to be on the actual criminal charge. So it's a significant blow to her. How likely is it that also they will go after the former president, Donald Trump? Can they subpoena him? They can subpoena him. Uh, I don't think that's worthwhile. It is unusual in a criminal prosecution for the district attorney to subpoena a target, a potential defendant of the investigation to appear in front of the grand jury. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of 10, they're going to you know, claim Fifth Amendment privilege. They're not going to say anything helpful to the investigation. And again, by sending that target letter, you're just putting them on notice that they're now a potential defendant. So if she's really going after Trump, in addition to other people, There's no need to identify him as a target. There's no need to subpoena him to the grand jury. It it would just kind of create a sideshow, which could lead to more problems, just like we've seen today. WABE legal analyst and defense attorney, not our defense attorney, but he's a defense attorney. (laughs) But we'll call you. Well, hopefully we won't ever need to call you. Everybody's defense attorney. (laughs) The people's defense attorney. Oh, now you sound like a a, a TV show. Paige Pate, as always, we appreciate you taking the time and breaking this down for our listeners. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Paige. Thank you, Rose. Let's get back to some other news today. Vice President Kamala Harris is in Indiana today as part of a Roe versus Wade roundtable discussion with Indiana state lawmakers. Now, they've called a special legislative session that's going to get underway this week as Indiana Republican lawmakers are pushing bills that include restricting access to abortion. Here's what Vice President Harris had to say. An individual should be able to choose based on their personal beliefs and the dictates of their faith But the government should not be telling an individual what to do, especially as it relates to one of the most intimate and personal decisions a woman could make. 
Indiana's maternal mortality rate is third behind Georgia and Louisiana. In related news, Republicans in Georgia hope inflation and high gas prices, high gas prices will give them an edge in the November election. Democrats, meanwhile, hope the new six-week abortion ban will energize voters, as we hear from our politics reporter, Raul Bali. At a campaign stop in Northeast Georgia last week, Republican U.S. Senate candidate Herschel Walker deflected a reporter's question about Georgia's 2019 abortion law taking effect. You're going to bring up things that people are not concerned about. And that's what I said. People are concerned about the gas. They're concerned about food. They're not even talking about that. And that's not what I'm hearing about. Walker stayed on that message with a follow-up question on abortion. Polling shows that inflation is the biggest issue for Georgia voters. Democrats know inflation is a big issue, but Georgia's six-week abortion ban has given them a new argument. Here's candidate for Governor Stacey Abrams at a campaign event in Atlanta last week. The economy can change, but this law becomes the law of the land. And I would say to balance whether your immediate concerns about money outweigh your concerns about your constitutional protected rights. The midterms are about three months away, so a lot can happen with the economy and the implementation of Georgia's new abortion ban. Stay tuned. Raul Bally, WABE News. And Georgia abortion rights advocates continue to protest, even though the state's restrictive abortion law has gone into effect. Emily Wu Pearson has more from a march over the weekend where protesters say they're not giving up. About 100 protesters wound through the streets of Atlanta, eventually ending up at the state capitol. Last week, a federal court unblocked Georgia's abortion ban, one of the most restrictive in the country. That six-week gap should not even be present. The ban shouldn't be present. We want to ensure that our voices are heard. Amari Fanoy is the state coordinator for the Georgia NAACP. What it's saying, because black women and black birth people are dying three times at the rate of our counterparts. That's a major issue. You talk Advocates say more women, especially black women, will die from pregnancy complications because of the restrictions. Georgia already has the second highest maternal mortality rates in the country. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. In other news, the competition for hourly employees continues to be fierce in today's economy. And a few companies with headquarters right here in Metro Atlanta have programs to get this pay for college as a way to recruit workers, as we hear from Emil Moffitt. Papa John's Dough and Degrees program pays for employees to earn online college degrees while working. Company Vice President Kim Adams says it's a benefit that can help Papa John's stand out in a very competitive labor market. We believe our Dough and Degrees program um, helps to attract as well as to retain top talent. Papa John says 60 employees have earned degrees since the program was launched three years ago. To keep that momentum going, the company sent out brand ambassador Shaquille O'Neal on a school bus last week to promote the program. You know, the fact that we're allowing our team members to further their education and uh, at no cost to them, I think is really, really big. Atlanta-based UPS also offers tuition assistance through its Earn and Learn program, which began 25 years ago. Justin Luther is with UPS. We're getting talent who generally stick with us as they pursue their higher ed goals, and our people are getting their degrees. Last year, the shipping giant put $30 million toward reimbursing education expenses of part-time employees. Emil Moffitt, WABE News. And finally, it's been all good for two Georgia natives on the racing scene. Chase Elliott is expanding his lead in the NASCAR Cup Series Championship. Elliott actually finished third in Sunday's race at Pocono, but get this, the two cars ahead of him failed post-race inspections, and he was then declared the winner. Hey, get it any way you can. This was his fourth victory this season. The 26-year-old Dawsonville native is the son of NASCAR legend Bill Elliott. And he now has a strong 6-7-point lead in the regular season standings. There are just five races to go before the playoffs. Meanwhile, in the Camping World Truck Series. We've been going through a little bit of a struggle here recently, but uh, just when we need to shine, we start shining. That's 20-year-old Chandler Smith from Talking Rock, Georgia, from Fox Sports. He won the regular season final in Pocono as well. And then Smith says he will enter the Truck Series playoff as a number two seed. By the way, if you're wondering where is Talking Rock, Georgia, the town is in the North Georgia Mountains between the towns of LJ and Jasper, all up in Pickens County. Just up there. You're listening to Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. 
Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. And a programming note, um, our following conversation may contain allegations of sexual abuse or sexual assault. So I just wanted to let you know. As of right now, five women have come forward and all are alleging sexual abuse by a nurse inside an ICE detention center in South Georgia. This is not the first time there have been allegations of some type for a detention center and personnel here in Georgia. Joining me now is Azadeh Shashahani. She's a legal and advocacy director of Project South, and they have been calling for the closure of these centers and working on behalf of those detained in these centers for some years now. Uh, Azadeh, welcome. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me. Let's begin here because, as noted, your organization has been calling for the closure of detention centers here in Georgia with these latest allegations. This, through your lens, just sort of validates what you all have been calling for for so long. Definitely. And, you know, the really horrifying thing about this situation is um, that women started being detained at Stewart in December 2020 after we brought to light uh, the medical abuse against women at the Irving County Detention Center. So the Trump administration at the time decided that in order to, um, you know, focus people's attention elsewhere, you know, let's transfer women elsewhere. So they, you know, decided to start detaining women at Stewart, um, which, you know, was cause for real concern to us, knowing the history of a Stewart and the deaths um, and the forced labor program and all the human rights violations. Um, and of course, shortly afterwards, um, the sexual abuse uh, started. So there are actually allegations of um, sexual um, abuse by um, 11 women against uh, staff at the Stewart Detention Center. Obviously, five of them we know um, are um, focused on um, this particular nurse. Um, and I should also say that the Intercept discovered that mm-hmm. two women have also attempted suicide while detained at Irving, and, while detained at Stewart. And we should note that this all began, this reporting that made public was by the, the Intercept. I want to go back for a moment. I want to get some clarity here for our listeners because there were some concerns about just how many women had officially, in a sense, I guess, uh, alleged sexual misconduct. Initially, there were two internal complaints. One was filed last year and one earlier this year, correct, uh, to the Office for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. Is that correct? Right. And then the Intercept actually discovered that there was a third complaint that was also filed, but for some reason it did not appear within the database of the Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. Um, and, of course, for Civic the corporation that runs the Stewart Detention Center mm-hmm. knew all the while about the allegations against this um, nurse and the sexual abuse allegations. Um, but they, um, you know, engaged um, in the usual cover-up um, and they actually blatantly lied to the reporters. So there was a cover-up going on um, that I think, um, you know, Congress um, and that administration definitely need to get to the bottom of. And we should note Core Civic is the entity that operates and manages the detention center, correct? Yes. What do you all, have y'all done any or have you received any other allegations from other centers or other facilities that Core Civic manages? Um, well, this corporation has um, a really um, horrible track record, um, you know, related to sexual assault, but also other um, violations uh, in ICE prisons and also other type of prisons. Uh, you know, they're a private prison corporation, actually the largest private prison corporation in the country. So their track record is well known. I should mention some of your listeners may remember the Corrections Corporation of America. This is the same entity. You know, at some point, their public relations people advised them to change their name to Core Civic to create a different image of them. But of course, you know, we all know um, that the reputation and history uh, is there. Um, and so, um, 
you know, in terms of sexual assault at other uh, detention centers in Georgia, we are um, definitely keeping our eyes open. Um, and, you know, any complaints that we receive, uh, we will definitely follow up. And we should actually note that according to CoreCivic, they claim to be the world's largest private prison company owning and operating prisons and jails, including immigration jails, and as they put it, community correction centers. That's how they put it. Uh, let's go back here then. You, of course, you are aware of that. Georgia U.S. Senators are now calling for an investigation into these allegations. What are you hearing, Azadeh? Well, yes, um, that letter from Senator Ossoff and Senator Warnock was really a positive step. Um, you know, what really led to the Biden administration um, finally uh, removing immigrants from the Irving County Detention Center was really pressure from Congress. Um, so a delegation of 12 members of Congress came down in the fall of 2020. They visited Irving. They called it a horror show. Um, after they exited um, Irving, they held up a banner saying, shut down Irving now. Um, and they continue to keep up the pressure on the Trump administration um, to do something. Um, and of course, then, you know, uh, President Biden came to power. Um, and so that pressure from members of Congress was extremely helpful. Um, and so we do hope that this letter from the Georgia senators um, is one step. You know, we do need um, additional members of Congress, especially the Georgia congressional delegation, to sign on. Um, you know, this is not a, um, any type of a you know partisan <laughs> issue. This is about human rights violations that hopefully everyone can agree that sexual assault um, is wrong and needs to needs to stop immediately. And we should note, and according to The Intercept, and you tell me if I'm correct, that the nurse alleged to have committed these abuses continued to give medical attention to women at Stewart as recently as July, as recently as July 2nd, given these allegations going back to last year. To your knowledge, is this nurse still at Stewart? That is what we understand. That is exactly what we understand. Um, and, you know, a number of the allegations that were filed um, apparently were handled internally, according to Core Civic. Um, you know, doesn't, uh, it's not clear what that, you know, internal investigation means mm-hmm. when this nurse is employed by Core Civic. Core Civic is the in- entity that manages medical care um, at the Stuart Detention Center. Um, and out of the women who actually, um, put forward a complaint. Um, I mean, remember the vulnerable situation that these women are in. These are migrant women, um, you know, who have fled horrific conditions in their countries of origin and trying to gain asylum in this country. They had the immense courage to file a complaint um, against the nurse about the sexual assault that they had received. And instead of having some type of meaningful process in place to address the sexual assault, they were threatened. Um, by Core Civic and by ICE uh, with prolonged confinement and, um, you know, really um, aggressive behavior. Let me ask you this. I want to follow up on that. What proof do you all have that it actually took place, that these women were threatened based on the fact that there were allegations that they had lobbied? Do you all have, was it just in their statements? Right. I mean, uh, you know, definitely our our partners, um, you know, SBLC, um, and um, you know, other organizations uh, have talked to the women directly. The Intercept has done a very thorough investigation where they interviewed the women, they interviewed their attorneys, and they also have filed open records requests and Freedom of Information Act requests where they obtained a lot of information from the emergency calls. So the information that we have about the attempted suicide of women, two women have attempted suicide at mm-hmm. Stewart. That is all from the calls um, to emergency. And Azadeh, do we know that for most of the women who are detained in, at Stewart, is it due to they are awaiting some type of decision on their immigration status or lawful residency status here in the United States? Or have they been charged with some other charge and then that is because of their immigration status being upheld or whatever, they are detained at, at at Stewart, what is the basis for many of them being there? Right. So all of these women who have been subjected to sexual assault, they are all asylum seekers. Um, I should say that they are now out of a Stewart and are awaiting um, the you know, immigration court proceedings in terms of a decision on their asylum case. 
Um, and so that's why they were detained um, at Stewart in the first place, uh, which is you know, a larger conversation about the necessity of imprisoning asylum seekers in a place like the Stewart Detention Center. What would be an appropriate housing or facility for women, for anyone really, who is waiting, or maybe there is an appeal or they're waiting to hear in terms of a determination of their immigration status. You all have lobbied for these detention centers to be closed. What is a, a, a viable solution then that you all would like to see? Sure. Um, actually, releasing the women and uh, on their own recognizance um, is a process that has been proven to work. I mean, there are studies done showing that the vast, vast, vast majority of people released on their recognizance do very much show up to their immigration court hearings because people want their asylum case to go forward and to have a status in this country. Um, you know, short of that, there are other community-based um, programming um, that the government can look into. You know, and I'm not talking about ankle bracelets because we consider ankle bracelets a different form of detention, not an alternative form to detention. But I think you know what it takes is just a little bit of creativity. Um, and for the Biden administration to follow its promises of cutting ties with the private prison industry. Because mm-hmm. I think as long as you have the private prison lobby in the game with a huge intense incentive of making money off of the pain of immigrants and other imprisoned people, we're going to continue to have the same issues. There has also been allegations of some type of uh, forced prison labor as a form yes. of some type of punishment. Yes. You, you all have heard that as well. Yes, we are actually co-counsel in a class action lawsuit um, along with SBLC and, and law firms um, that was filed in 2018 on behalf of uh, detained migrants at the Stewart Detention Center. Um, and so what, what happens is that um, migrants are basically doing the chores that the Stewart Detention Center needs um, in order for it to keep functioning, whether it's cleaning or cooking or other chores. And, um, you know, the prison corporation, instead of hiring regularly waged employees, is relying on the forced labor of detained immigrants. So it's a win-win game for them. And it's obviously a losing, losing situation for, for um, detained immigrants who are, who are forced to take part in this labor program. Um, otherwise, they are threatened with solitary. They're actually placed in solitary confinement or they're deprived of basic necessities of life. Azadeh, is there a state out there or is there a, 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 any entity that you can point to that is a, a detention center, even if you don't like that term, but is a facility that houses immigrants, those who are, are awaiting to hear a ruling on their asylum or whatever? Is there something out there you can point to that, in, through your organization's viewpoint, does this in an ethical and, and humane and and right way, I guess, so to speak, that you all could point to, that the state should probably seek to change to? Well, not in the United States, I should say. Um, uh, there are attempts, there have been attempts on the part of some state legislatures, such as California, in terms of banning um, private prisons. So that is a step in the right direction. Um, you know, there may be models in some European countries, um, you know, in terms of, you um, um, treatment of asylum seekers, um, but but I, you know, I should say there is no country in the world that, that is doing this the right way in terms of humane treatment of migrants and asylum seekers. Um, so I think there's a lot of work that all of us, um, you know, working um, in support of migrants and asylum seekers need to do. Azadeh, how many folks are detained at Stewart? So the capacity is about 2,000, um, but right now it, it's been about half of that. Mm. Azadeh Shahani, Legal and Advocacy Director of Project South. Thank you so much for taking us the time. As always, we'll continue to follow up on this story as this more comes to light. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.
And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Last year, the U.S. National Science Foundation opened up a new funding opportunity to study systemic racism and injustice in the STEM education fields. Now, the funding would support projects focused on what they call, quote, advancing racial equity in STEM education and workforce development that are led or co-developed by individuals and communities most impacted by the inequities caused by systemic racism, close quote. Now, disparities within STEM disciplines, which stands for science, technology, engineering, and math, it is not new. I think we all know this. We talked about this for so many years. And also the need to prepare specific populations of our students. That's been the mission of many organizations, including the one we're about to talk about, SMASH. Returning to Closer Look is Cameron Clay. He's the National Director of Curriculum and Training at SMASH. We're going to learn about some new initiatives, and it involves some of our HBCUs here right in Atlanta. Clay, welcome back. Cameron, welcome back. You've been on this program before, haven't you? I have not, but you thanks haven't? for having me, Rose. I'm excited to be here. But SMASH no, has been on this program not. before. Somebody Definitely. from SMASH has been on this program. You know what? I may not remember when I interviewed somebody, but I know what I interview people about. But let's back up for a bit. A bit. Your vision you all say that SMASH is about a STEM ecosystem where every student, regardless of the zip code they grew up in, has the opportunity to participate in and thrive in the global economy, close quote. How long have you all been around? Uh, we've been around for, oh man, it's it'll be 21 years starting next year. Uh, we just started in... Uh, at UC Berkeley mm -hmm. uh, some time ago. <laughs> and then since then we've worked on uh, securing partnerships with universities around the country, uh, specifically in areas where we see uh, large uh, numbers of Latinx and mm -hmm. black folks. Uh, and so since then, yeah, it's, it's been a journey, right? From Berkeley, California, yeah. Oakland, California, all the way to Atlanta, Detroit, Boston, uh, so, yeah, we're, we've seen some growth and we plan on keep growing. So coming into the segment and I talk about that funding opportunity from the U.S. National Science Foundation. And we've been hearing a lot lately, I guess maybe the last maybe five to six years, there's been this focus on closing that gap. We hear this a lot. There's always this disparity gap. So let me ask you, Cameron, why does this gap continue between students That's of color and their counterparts? Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm um, going to do a little shout out to uh, some of my coworkers here. Uh, you can uh, check out the leakytechpipeline.com. Uh, so some of the folks that uh, I work with at the center um, and folks across the nation in education uh, came up with what's called the Leaky Tech Pipeline. It's mm -hmm. a framework uh, to understand the disparities in the tech ecosystem and raise awareness and uh, offer strategies for intervention. Um, looking at that report, they go through all different ways in which um, historically folks have been left out of tech and STEM specifically. Uh, and I would say a lot of these issues continue um, because we don't, we haven't seen a mass uh, push from a variety of organizations to address these challenges, right? The onus is on society at large, but that includes nonprofits, corporate leaders, lawmakers, um, you know, we've seen quite a, a bit of uh, kerfuffle over the last few years oh, yeah. over STEM and, and trying to address these, address these inequities, but they've been here, like you mentioned earlier, uh, right? So while, while we have the attention, the spotlight, we're gonna keep on pushing forward and ensure that uh, we're getting some resources funneled correctly. Cameron, often when I have this conversation as it relates to the STEM disciplines, people always say, well, first we got to start with making sure that students of color, particularly black students and Hispanic or Latin students, see people who look like them. Yes. You came up in the STEM field, obviously. Did you see a lot of folks that represented your community, your population? Ooh, I definitely not. Uh, I, I, I did not. And I, I'll, I'll bring it. There's a slide of a caveat to that. So I ended up, I was at one point a food science major um, at one of the best undergraduate programs for food science in the U.S. And there was one faculty of color in the entire department. I would be one of two, maybe three students, certain years of, of students in my department. And 
it was a it was a weird experience to say the least right you're you're in class and you i have interests around you know um food and access for communities of color mm-hmm. uh and there wasn't often even the space to have those types of conversations, um, whether it be with my the people in my classes or my instructors, uh, because those things weren't something that was part of their research or, or part of, you know, even the things that they were thinking about. Mm-hmm. So I think being a student of color, a black student in STEM was definitely a challenge. Um, and so you try to find community where you can. Um, and I think that's that's one of the things that Smash offers for our scholars, right? Regardless of where they end up going to school later on, they have a whole network of other students and um, working professionals to support them and, and give them that um, just an ear sometimes. But I'm gonna, I want to ask, are you still hearing that from some students saying, hey, Cameron, I, I don't see folks. And, and for folks that are listening and say, why does it matter? I'm not going to have that conversation because yeah. you should know why it matters. <laughs> I do get emails, Cameron, from folks that, that say, why does it matter? And I'm like, I'm not having that conversation with you right now. But you still get that from students who say, Cameron, man, look, I, I still don't see folks look like me. And that's important to me. Yeah, I definitely still hear that. Uh, and I think not necessarily addressing those folks in your emails, right? But these are systemic issues. And so they take a long time to really address the challenges. It's it's not a quick fix or solution where you can just say, all right, this company is gonna write a check and by next year, we're gonna see this many people in these organizations or, or at these schools or in these departments. I think it's gonna really take uh, some time to really make the changes that um, folks wanna see. And then it's also going to be, you know, let's a little bit longer down your trajectory. You might go through school, you might, go to an HBCU and you're in mm-hmm. class, you have professors that look like you, you're in science, but then you go off into the industry and you show up at an organization or a company that doesn't have a lot of people that look like you. Um, and, you know, our co- is the company you're at going to take the steps to remedy that? Um, that's another conversation in itself, right? We also need to see this uh, a little bit further down the track as well. Let's talk about then where you all begin. Is it with high school? Is it middle school? Is it even younger? I know you all offer a lot of camps. You all offer a lot lot of initiatives. We're going to get to the one here as it relates to Spelman and Morehouse. But how young do you all seek to start working with kids? Yeah, so we start with our scholars, uh, as we call them, uh, the year after their freshman year of high school. They can join SMASH. They apply during their, their school year. And then they come on and they join Smash Academy. Uh, We have a couple of years, three years of high school programming. Um, We offer programming throughout the year and specifically in the summer. And then senior year, we have uh, what we call our program called Smash Admit. Uh, We have a bunch of coaches and and folks that help the students uh, figure out their college path, whether that's choosing a major, choosing a university. There's a lot of decisions to be made. Uh, And then we also have some college programming as well to help uh, students persist during college, as well as uh, secure internships. We have uh, internship opportunities with uh, a number of tech companies, Mm -hmm. Meta, uh, Zillow, uh, just to name a few. Uh, So we start pretty early and and I think that is part of our special sauce, if you will. Uh, We're really about a long-term investment in our students. I wanna go back to the Smash Academy that you all have. What are you all offering what resources specifically do you have for students? Are you getting them introduced into certain types of curriculum and just training? What exactly are you all getting them prepared for as they return to school, not only high school, but for those that are even going to going to college? What exactly are you preparing them with? Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the things you mentioned earlier was about, you know, students being able to see themselves. Uh, so first off, I want to start off by talking about our staff. So, of our Smash Academy staff identify as Black or Latinx, Mm -hmm. um, which is really important, right, for these scholars to see folks um, that might have careers that they're interested in or that they've never heard of come and uh, give their time during the summer uh, and throughout the school year um, is super important. So I want to shout out those folks and make sure I, you know, mention them. Um, but during our summer programming, our Smash Academy, one of the uh, we have a few things. We have some core curriculum, uh, which is really focused on inquiry-based learning and project-based learning uh, and engaging students 
um, to think about uh, issues of equity and access and uh, get a better understanding of opportunities that exist in tech and STEM, um, but also explore. I think that's a big thing that I, I see when I go around and I visit the students every summer is just giving them the opportunity to think about uh, STEM and, and careers and tech and and look at research they've never heard of before. Because oftentimes uh, in high school, you don't always get those opportunities, mm -hmm. regardless of how good your school is, right? I think is really important for you to have that level of exposure. And that's what we really focus on. Uh, we also have networking series where we have people come from um, tech companies and education, STEM education that have been teaching or working for years and years and years, but also some of our, uh, our alumni that have been working for like a few years, giving them a chance uh, to talk to the students about what they're going through. And then uh, for our curriculum, we really have uh, a wide array of electives, uh, depending on where the scholars uh, go. We have justice electives and that sort of thing but mm -hmm. we also have a core programming focus in computer science and design thinking um, which is very huge i think for uh to have a stem a solid stem education is be able being able to think critically problem solve uh rapidly come up with solutions uh and and i think those are some of the skills that we really uh see as necessary once you get into stem right because you can go into mm -hmm various fields of engineering but are your are are you are you being challenged on how to think and how to think outside the box now um, i have participated in a design thinking one day retreat it is quite something <laughs> yes yeah definitely I, I think um you know when i when i talk about some of these things with like my family right like my grandparents they're old school they're from they're from the South. They don't know a lot about, you know, design thinking. They've never heard a lot of these terms. Right. But I think uh, it's one of those things that even. Now, I had never really heard that term. Really you calling me old, Cameron? Yeah. Cameron, you no, calling me old? Because I had. No. <laughs> I think I think it, it's 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 something across generations that is new to people. I talk to my grandparents. I talk to my friends uh, that work in tech and a lot of them have never gone through the experience of a design sprint. Um, or, or any design thinking <laughs> exercises. And I think people are presently surprised right. about how much you can really learn and, and, and gain from just simple exercises. You know, right? I'm going to pick, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick up for grandparents. You know that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. As you should. <laughs> the voice you hear is Cameron Clay. He's the national director of curriculum and training at smash. It's an organization where their mission is to really help sort of, close that gap, the disparity gap as it relates to students, students of color, particularly in the STEM fields. Let's talk about what you all just announced here recently with Spelman College. Oh, yes. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great program. Uh, so this summer, we just kicked off our first inaugural Smash Spelman cohort. Mm -hmm. uh, we have 25 young ladies uh, who have the opportunity to participate in year-round immersive educational program. Uh, for their entire high school career. Uh, as part of that inaugural cohort, uh, Spelman has also uh, launched an, an initiative called the Futures Intersectional. Mm -hmm. um, it's a discussion series highlighting the contributions of Black women to technological advancement, uh, and it's in collaboration with uh, UCLA, uh, the AUC Data Science Initiative, um, and these program, this program, us partnering with Spelman is one, it's a, an amazing opportunity. Our CEO actually is a Spelman alum. Mm -hmm. um, so I know this was really big for her um, and she's really excited to come back and, and contribute. Are you talking um, about uh, Danielle program, Rose? Correct, correct. It was Danielle Rose, yes. Uh, our programming there is gonna focus on uh, driving social change at scale using technology, uh, the scholars there are going to be building computer science skills. Uh, they'll have access to career mentorship and uh, completing some college prep workshops. And yeah, again, I think the mentorship uh, for those young ladies to go to Spelman, to walk around the campus, to learn the culture, to not cut through the grass and all the things and see women that look like them um, that have careers that they could potentially have is going to be huge for them. 
And we should know. Uh, so really that, excited about that. Absolutely, we should note that Spellman is the leads the nation when it comes to producing the number of Black women who complete PhDs in the STEM fields. Spellman is number one in that regards. Let's let's uh, back up a little bit because also, as you know, for a lot of students, um, when it comes yeah. to higher education, f- access to f- funding <laughs> is also yes. a problem. Do you all offer? some type of scholarships as well to help students. Because, look, everybody want to go to Spelman or Morehouse, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a price. You know, let's be really clear. It's a price. Most definitely. Most definitely. Uh, so we do have, we uh, we offer a bunch of scholarship opportunities. Uh, once scholars get a little bit closer to that, that senior year and they're working on their programs, we have partnerships. Uh, we actually had a, a number of students I think two years ago now, uh, that received uh, scholarships to Morehouse, mm-hmm. uh, speaking of another HBCU. Uh, so we try to uh, leverage the partnerships that we have with the universities, as well as our corporate sponsorships, uh, to offer scholarships to our students. Um, now, that's not going to always cover 100% of everyone's position, sure. right? I think college, everyone knows these days college is quite expensive. So uh, one of the things we definitely try to do in our college prep program it's really talk about financial aid, really talk about it holistically, too. I think some folks, you know, scholarships are big. Everyone wants a full ride scholarship and they're amazing and they're great. Um, but it's also important to understand the other options that you have. If you need to take out loans, um, how to access grants, you know, how to make sure you're filling out your FAFSA and any of your necessary paperwork uh, correctly so you can have access to aid, because um, I think now we're we're definitely in an era where uh, the cost of college and, and higher education is on everyone's mind, right? From the parents to the students themselves and trying to figure out how to navigate that. Um, and so we like to be a, a sort of an aid. Uh, you know, a lot of high school students do have uh, college counselors and that sort of thing. Um, but a lot of times they're overwhelmed and they don't you know, the students don't have as much access as they'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, so we try to provide uh, holistic programming to help them navigate that process as well. A couple of years ago, I interviewed a young man from Morehouse, Ernest Holmes, I believe was his name. And Ernest had, you know, job offers before he had even graduated from Morehouse. That was great for him. Uh, let's talk then about that career pipeline. Is there an area or, or field that you can tell our listeners that you, you may have companies or corporations say, look, we would love to have more diversity in this field, or is it just all the fields when we talk about STEM? Is there a particular area? That's a great question. Um, You know, I think me personally, I think it's important to see representation and diversity in in all of the STEM fields. Mm -hmm. Um, If we look at... um, you know, the if we if we look at nature, for example, nature is full of diversity, right? You're seeing if you go out, I don't know where exactly everyone lives, who your listeners live, right? But you can go out to your local park, your local woods. You're going to see different kinds of birds, trees, plants, um, and they all live together in, in one ecosystem. And I think for STEM, for us to really have a um, to meet the challenges of the the coming future, whether it be climate change, uh, racial justice and equity, mm-hmm. we're really going to need to see a, a variety of people at the table making decisions, uh, making contributions to different fields. Um, well, then, I, w- I will say in terms of, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, finish. Uh, in terms of our programming in particular, we do see a high level of our, our, our students, our scholars uh, take on computer science degrees. Um, and that is something I think close to the work that we do, um, being that we're from the Silicon Valley and our founders um, have spent a lot of time working on uh, making tech a more equitable and diverse place. Uh, We do have a heavy focus on tech in particular. Why is Atlanta also so important? Because and we've been talking about this, Atlanta has now become sort of this, you know, the the Silicon Valley of the South. You, you, You buy that? I do. I do. I lived in Atlanta for a few years, actually. Um, I didn't graduate from Morehouse, but I did attend Morehouse for a few years. And I remember, and this was quite some time, so I know the city's much different than when I lived there. But even when I lived there, I remember just being there and, and, and seeing like, wow, 
uh, you know, people used to say, yeah, this is black Hollywood. This is black Hollywood. <laughs> they and still I, say I that. I <laughs> always thought, yeah, they, and, I, and I think it's an interesting notion because there are so, there's so much more to Atlanta, I think, than just the, uh, you know, what you see on the internet, what you see in the videos, what you hear in music, right? There are people uh, coming back who have lived there or just transplants coming there, um, working in, in, in STEM and tech and trying to make um, Atlanta the Silicon Valley of the South. And I love to see it. I think it's it's a, uh, a great place to do that. Um, relative to um, just a locale, right? Mm -hmm. Like being in Atlanta, being in the South, there's a huge pool from other states, from people in close proximity, a lot of black, black folks in the South. So I, I, I love to see it. I'm excited for what the future brings. I have a listener has a question. Listener says, my nephew <laughs> has a computer science degree but can't find a job. He's been out of school for two years. Uh, what suggestions do you have? See, folks yes, need jobs. Yes. Okay. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I think one of the the big things um, is tapping into your network. Um, once you have a computer science degree, once you are in a STEM degree, um, definitely connecting with uh, whatever university the student attended, uh, their career programming. Oftentimes, uh, the career centers at whatever university you attended, they get job postings and people reach out to them. I think. Um, that's definitely a first Can you step. all help? Do you uh, all help folks who've got the degrees? We do, yeah. actually. Yeah, we do. So if they go over to, I don't know the exact URL, but if they check out the K4 Center website, we have a, a list, uh, a job board for companies that focus on diversity in tech and hiring. What's the website um, again? So Kpoorcenter.com. Kpoor and we'll have Kpoor K A P O R, and we have a job board there for job seekers. Um, specifically, our company is looking to recruit underrepresented folks in STEM. All right, Cameron Clay, National Director of Curriculum and Training at Smash. Thank you so much for taking the time, Cameron. Good conversation. Thank you for what you all are doing to help so many students. Thanks for your time, Rose. I appreciate the conversation. All right, take care. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Daniel Razel, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson. Our intern for the summer is Lennox Johnson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinka. Reminder, you can revisit all of our conversations online at closerlookwab.org slash closerlook. And of course, you know, listen to the rebroadcast at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast because we have one. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.